Tenekoto, Namai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hi everyone, welcome back. If this is your first time tuning into our podcast, thank you for joining us all. I hope you all had a great Halloween celebration if you celebrate that holiday. I'm not going to talk much before we get into conversation with my guest this episode. As always, are you willing to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands and see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. Bruce Olav Solheim was born in 1958 in Seattle, Washington to hard-working Norwegian immigrant parents. As born in Olag Solheim, Bruce was the first person in his family to go to college. He served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard and later as a helicopter pilot. He earned his Ph.D. in history from the Bowling Green State University in 1993. He's a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He also served as a Fulbright professor in 2003 at the University of Tromso in northern Norway. He teaches a paranormal personal history course at Citrus College. Dr. Solheim is an associate member of the Parapsychological Association and a member of CERO and MUFON. He founded the Veterans Program at Citrus College and co-founded with Manuel Martinez and Ginger de Villarose the Boots to Books Transition Course, the first college course in the United States designed specifically for recently returned veterans. He has published eight books, one comic book, and has written ten plays, two of which have been produced. Bruce is married to Ginger and has four wonderful children. He also has two precious grandsons. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Bruce Olav Solheim.
welcome, Bruce, and thank you for joining us today. Well, well, thank you for in, for inviting me, Marianne. You are a professor currently, are you? Yeah, I teach. Uh, I'm a tenured professor, uh, a distinguished professor. My colleagues gave me that moniker uh, several years ago, which I'm very proud of. So I've been teaching here at Citrus College for uh, 23 years and uh, 30 years total teaching, but 23 years here in Southern California. That's a long time to be in the education <laughs> field, and you're still teaching. Uh, it doesn't stop, does it? Just teaching in different areas now. And yeah. uh, I see that you used to be an aviator in the Army and a former defense contractor as well. Yeah, I have some government experience. I, I spent six years in the U.S. Army. Uh, I uh, was first a jail guard. I worked in West Germany when it was East and West Germany. Right. During the Cold War. And then uh, I uh, went to flight school, became a warrant officer and flew helicopters. And I was with the 82nd Airborne Division. So I, luckily, I was never in combat because I'm, I'm a very sensitive person. So I think I probably wouldn't have done well in combat, yeah. Yeah. at least not in the long, you know, afterwards. I probably could have got through it at the time, but, you know, nobody knows. But it uh, uh, came close several times. We were loaded up on the... Uh, transport aircraft ready to go uh you know god knows where they were going to send us but that's that's the way it was in the uh when i was with the 82nd airborne it was a rapid deployment force so and then i worked uh, after the military i worked for boeing uh, for the military part of boeing i was on the b1 bomber project the b2 bomber uh i started uh, briefly and uh, and uh, so, yeah, I've, I've worked in defense contracting and then, uh, yeah, I've been teaching, uh, you know, like I said, for 30 years, teaching history and political science, but mainly history now. Well, wow, that's an interesting combination. I guess there is <laughs> a bit of a crossover there, though, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I've had a great time. I, I love teaching in the classroom. Of course, the last year and a half, we've been teaching online, and that'll continue probably through uh, next year. It looks like we just had a big meeting today with our faculty union, and uh, in the and I think that's what's going to happen because of the the Delta variant, uh, right. you know, and all the precautions and so forth. And uh, it looks like we're going to have mandatory vaccinations at the campus and all kinds of things are going on. Not sure how it is there, you know, where you're at, but uh, th that's what's going on here, a very serious situation. And, and uh, but I, yeah, I've had a lot of different experiences. I've also worked as a carpenter, worked, uh, you know, so I've done uh, a lot of different things in my life. But um, the main thing that I've enjoyed is uh, teaching and writing. So mm. I've been doing that. I've been writing since I was a little kid. And uh, yeah. Right. And you've got a few <laughs> books published, haven't you? Yeah, I've published, I've been lucky enough to publish 12 books. Uh, wow. The last, last four uh, have been, uh, well, in addition to my comic books too, I've published a couple of comic books, which are really one of the things I'm most proud of is actually publishing a comic book. It's like a lifelong dream uh, to do that since I was a little kid. But uh, the, uh, the last four books have been paranormal books, which have uh, documented my paranormal experiences that I've had since I was about four years old including, you know, ghosts and, and uh, psychokinesis and telekinesis and angels and demons and aliens and cryptids and 
everything, all the, all the paranormal stuff. I'm like a lightning rod for it. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing recently. I, and I teach a paranormal course. I haven't taught it during uh, the, you know, when we've been online, but um, hopefully when we go back to campus then I will teach my paranormal course again. Uh, so I, I, yeah, it's, it's very, very enjoyable. I, I enjoy teaching history in my day job, but in the, you know, the night classes, the paranormal class was great, really cool people. And they all have one thing in common and, and that's, they all want a safe place to talk about their experiences because there's so many people who are, you know, they just don't want to hear it or they uh, you know, they want to make fun of a person who's had experiences and, right. and, and really that's what kept me silent uh, until 2016. Right. I, my whole life, I had all these paranormal experiences, couldn't talk to anybody mm. about it not in the military, not uh, for Boeing in the defense contract world, not in academe either, because in, you know, ac other academics are not, you know, they're going to laugh at you. At least that's what I thought. Yeah. But yeah. I, actually, I was wrong. I was wrong about that. I was, I've been accepted. At least if they're talking about me, they're doing it behind my back because I, they <laughs> haven't said anything to me in, in person. Well, there's always those, aren't there? But that's really mm -hmm. interesting that, I want to go back to your paranormal class, and it's mm -hmm. interesting that you point out that they want a place to talk about their yes. experiences. And it's been my observation that most people who have, like you and myself, have grown mm -hmm. up or have had paranormal experiences are, are more interested in finding out more, learning more. What sort of things did you cover in that class? Yeah, it's it's interesting. When I first design the class. I had all these lectures planned out and what I was going to do, we would do experiments and it was all very, you know, like I would do a history class, you know, right. I did a uh, history of the paranormal. And then we talk about, let's talk about telekinesis and way, you know, let's do it. Let's do some kind of experiment. And what I found out is that what the students want, and you always have to listen to what the students want, mm -hmm. because otherwise you're just up there, you know, talking and people are tuned out. So yeah. what, what they wanted was to be able to tell me and tell the class and to be accepted about what has happened to them. And then, so we did, so I had to quickly figure that out and say, okay, half the, you know, the beginning of the class, everybody's going to share. And then whatever people talk about those topics, I'll write them on the board. And then like, if, if somebody had a ghost experience, then we'll talk about apparitions that night, or we'll talk about telekinesis or we'll talk about, you know, whatever. Uh, that comes up angels and demons or, you know, cryptids. And we'll, we'll, so then I'll focus that night's kind of mini lecture about those particular aspects of the paranormal. So I, it kind of, like you said, organically came about mm -hmm. and the students loved it. I had, uh, I taught it for almost two years and uh, I had students who took the class every single time. They just wanted wow. to keep coming back and they'd tell their friends. And so, yeah, that, that's what we do. We, and we bring in guest speakers too. I'd have scientists come in. I had a member of the clergy come in. I had a magician come in, a professional working magician, because I, I always suspected that working magicians are not just doing stage magic. They might be doing some other stuff. And he said that that's true. Some of them are very gifted people who can do stuff and some right. dabble, dabble in the dark arts as well. As he said, not, not my friend who does it, but yes. other people do. And, um, uh, let's see who else have I brought in. I brought in, uh, you know, other psychics and, and uh, we've had seances. We, we had a uh, investigate paranormal investigation on our campus. We'd go out and we, there's a haunted playground that we have a, 
used to be a children's center on campus where the students would drop off their kids so they could go to school. And then they'd have child development teachers who were learning how to be, you know, Uh teachers to work with the kids. And then they shut it down and it's just like a haunt. It's like an abandoned playground. So it's very haunted. And the reason I found out is because the uh, security guards on the campus and the uh, custodians, the night custodians told me. Because I, I like to talk to the people who, uh, you know, especially the custodians, nobody ever sees them during the day. Very, right. very, not very often. And these are really cool people. And they really enjoyed me interviewing them. And mm-hmm. they told me all about the hauntings on the, on the campus. And, it, and then we did some of those investigations. So we did a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of everything. And uh, I, uh, I, I really miss those, those students and, and they're from all walks of life, you know, from younger mm-hmm. students to older students and, uh, you know, different nationalities and different uh, ethnicities and, and uh, genders and so forth. And, uh, but they all had that one thing in common. They wanted a safe place to tell, tell us what happened to them and to put it into some kind of meaning to, you right. know, some kind of context. Right. So that's that's what we we worked on together. And I I really I miss those students. And I well, I miss all my students because I just do online now, but it's especially those paranormal students. That must have been a fun class. That's a class that I would have been interested in doing. There's a lot of a lot of people have told me that. And and I had skeptics take the class, too. I had some fellow faculty members that thought they could go in there and just, you know, say, oh, this is a bunch of, you know, hooey, you know, this isn't real. And by the end of the class, I'm not going to say they were true believers, but they were um, asking me interesting questions like, uh, are there such things as spirit animals? Because I think my cat has come back and is in the, you know, I feel him in the, in the room and he died oh. a year ago. And I said, yeah, of course, you know, and, uh, and he was a hardcore skeptic when he came in. He was a math professor. So he, you know, everything oh, well, was science really, and math. Very left brain. Yeah. <laughs> And, but he's he's a very cool guy. So he he was open enough to listen to everybody, and it changed, uh, I think, his perception. You know, not that I was trying to tell him he was wrong or that you have to right. listen to me. All you know, we had thirty five students in that class, and he listened to all of them, and they uh, opened his mind a little bit more. Well, that's about, great, isn't you know, it? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was cool. Yeah. Speaking about animals, I mm-hmm. actually had an experience like that. Um, I was interviewing a guest on a really, really lovely chap. I, I just absolutely enjoyed talking to him. And the episode is called Selling Dead People's Things. Now, behind <laughs> him, he had this, he was the second, second-hand dealer, was the biggest second-hand dealer in Chicago. Oh, and okay. he wrote this really funny book about the business of selling second-hand goods. Mm-hmm. And he had this beautiful Art Deco screen behind him, and there was a gap in the screen where I could see the floor. You know, there was the mm-hmm. gap. And we were just nearing the end of the episode and I saw this dog walk past wagging its tail. And <laughs> I said to him, oh, you've got a dog. And he said, no. And I said, I just saw a dog go past clear as day. Mm-hmm. And I described it to him and he said, oh, that's, I can't remember the name of the dog now. It was a real cute, cutesy name. I think it was, mm-hmm. his, his, it was his sister's dog. So she mm-hmm. had named him a really cutesy name. Mm-hmm. And he, but he had died. The dog had died, Mm. but I saw it clear as day. And I went back to the video afterwards to see if I could find it. And damn, it just had me talking. It didn't have his Mm. screen on it, so I didn't capture it. But Mm -hmm. I cut that bit out and sent it to him so he could, you know, 
mm-hmm. see for himself. But th- that was a, a very interesting experience to have while I was recording the interview. Yeah, I'd love animals. I w- we can't have any animals here at the house because Ginger, my wife, is al- allergic to uh, animals with fur. You know, any kind of, I guess she would be okay with a reptile, but we don't want a reptile. But uh, so, <laughs> but the only good part of it, because I love animals so much and I, you know, and they always, you know, we usually outlive our animals, yes. our companions. And I, I just would be so torn up. I mean, I'm still sad about cats. I had, you know, I've, I've mainly had cats, but I love all animals. But uh, the only good thing about not having pets is that uh, I don't have to go through that, that loss thing. So yeah. I, whenever I, g- g- you know, go see somebody or I see animals, I, I just enjoy other people's animals, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and when they post pictures, I always comment on them, you know, on Facebook or whatever, you know, I just, so I, that's, I, I'm in, in enjoying them that way. But I, I really feel connected to animals, especially cats. I think that's who I'm really uh, attached to. Same. I'm a cat person. I'm absolutely a cat person. Old cat lady. I've only got one, but I'm an old cat lady. But yes, that was your math professor talking about his animal. That just brought that to my Mm -hmm. mind. Was he comforted by that? Yeah, he was. Uh, Once he realized that he wasn't imagining it, that this was a possibility and other people have had very similar experiences. I think he took some comfort in that, that he, uh, you know, not that he still didn't grieve the loss of being in this world, but he at least felt like the cat was still around and that made him feel better. So, and that's the whole purpose of uh, mediumship or any of that stuff is, is, uh, you know, not so much about being 100% accurate, uh, but just being of service or comfort to somebody and providing them sometimes with closure and, and things like that. And that's, that's really the most important thing I, uh, th- that I've seen, you know, in it's, my experience. Absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right about that. Then let's talk about some of them. The spirit that you see are ones that have passed over, correct? Mm-hmm. Not earthbound spirits, because there's a difference. Those that haven't moved on, who have stayed around the earth plane, they tend to just still have their earth memories and their earth characteristics, and they don't have the expanded view that those that have moved on do. Yeah, and they it, at least that's been my experience. No, anyway. I think I think you're right, and that my friend Jean, uh, who passed on and is in a very good place. Uh, I, when I, people ask me and I never take money for anything. If people say, I'd like you to contact my uncle Charlie or what I said, well, I will try. I don't charge anything, but I, you know, I can't guarantee I can. He might not want to talk to me, you know, but I'll, I'll try yeah, for yeah, So yeah. I do it as like a favor for people. And, uh, and I always ask Gene to help me because he's very good at, uh, I, I mean, I see his, his hand, you know, reaching out to people to, to bring them where they need to go. Cause yeah, there are, earthbound spirits, those that are stuck for whatever reason. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of what you encounter out there is not necessarily malevolent, but can be very annoying. You know, they can be energy drainers, you know, they can grab onto you and just hang on because they, you know, they so desperately want to be connected and they're not trying to do you harm, but they can drain energy from you. And that's why you have to, you have to be protected. And you had, like you say, question, and I think you need to have protection. If you're going to open yourself up, you have to be protected and you have to understand that there's, you know, there are risks that go with that. Yes, you're right. 
there is a point though some of these spirits that the earthbound ones not the ones that have moved on the earthbound ones some of them do know what they're doing though and some of them deliberately target people and like I say to my members if they were nasty malicious mean predators in life then if they haven't moved on that's exactly how they're going to be in spirit I've had members who have encountered such beings including sexual predators Mm -hmm. and they've been attacked by them so there are those around who are like that but there's not They're not that common, but they're common enough to cause issues to people. And so you do have to question who comes around you. You do have to check how they make you feel. And you're right, they can't hide their true uh, intent for long. They they can, yeah, I think you're right. No, they can trick you using yeah. whatever weaknesses you might have or yes. devices or whatever. Uh, not in this book, but in the, the uh, Timeless Trinity, I talked about a very negative experience I had. And uh, uh, it was in Chicago. And you mentioned Chicago earlier. Uh, what happened is I was on a show and some movie producer guy called me after the show. And he said, uh, I'd, I think uh, I'd like to test you for a documentary that I'm doing. And I said, okay. And uh, he was like an independent film producer. He wasn't like a Hollywood guy or something. And he said, I'd like to fly you out to Chicago, take you to some paranormal sites uh, and uh, see what you can pick up on and I'll film you and, you know, so forth. So uh, this was a couple of years. This was uh, early January, 2019. So a couple of years ago and, I, uh, I said, okay, uh, but only if Ginger can come with, you know, because I wanted her to come with just in oh, case the guy's a real weirdo. I wanted, you know, have a witness there because you, know, you never know. And uh, so, yeah, he put us up in a hotel and it was real. You know, he was a film producer and he had, uh, uh, he took me to different places. Most of them like a graveyard at an old, uh, an old haunted road. And I picked up on some stuff there, but it wasn't anything dramatic. I wasn't really impressing him, you know, like, oh my gosh, this guy's really a good psychic. You know, I was kind of rusty or, or, you know, slow picking up on stuff, but then he took me to the South side of Chicago and I would, I knew I I needed to impress this guy. And I, I I took it as a challenge and I, I, my pride got in the way. And this is a very, this is a cautionary tale for anybody, whether you're a psychic or not. You can set yourself up for disaster mm. by letting mm. your pride take over and uh, hubris even. Uh, and I wanted to prove to this guy what a great psychic I am or whatever. So it's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. But uh, so we drove to the south side of Chicago, got out in this parking lot. And there's like this alley uh, behind the building. And as soon as I got out of the car, I just put up my radar dish. I didn't even bother to do any protection or any preparation. I just, I just went right straight into it. And I, and I saw like it was an old black and white movie right in front of me in that alleyway in my mind's eye, I saw like it was the 1890s, you know, there were uh, uh, horses and buggies and people dressed in dark clothing. They were all moving very hyper kinetic moving really fast, except for this one man that was standing in front of me, staring at me. And he had a bowler hat, this big curly mustache really dark kind of scary eyes and uh, uh, like a long coat. And he just sat there staring at me and he made me very nervous. And, uh, and then he, it all disappeared. Right. So then I said, Oh, I got to make a connection again. I'd lost the connection. So I wa- wandered into the alley and I went up to a tree cause I like to find 
old objects and touch mm. them and see if I can pick up, help amplify, you know, uh, what has happened. And uh, the only clue this guy gave me he said, this is a very dark place. That's all I'm going to, he didn't tell me anything else about this site. Mm. So um, I go up to the tree. I was about to touch the tree and then I was tackled to the ground. I mean, just, and there wasn't anybody there yeah, yeah. physically there. I was, and I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm about six feet, three inches, about 280 pounds. I'm very big and uh, drove me into the ground and I injured my leg. It was so forceful. And the worst part of it is that I started to, to give up. It's like, I lost my will, wow. you know, it's like, I couldn't get out. It's like, I, what's wrong with me. And, mm. and he had a microphone on me. He didn't have the camera ready. So he was listening to all this as I was describing it. And I was in pain and I was, and, and I felt like, you know, I can't, I lost my energy. I've lost my will. And then I started to see like people under the ground, like in a dungeon, there's men, women, and children, um, and they were all being tortured and they were like grabbing at me, like pleading for help, you know, and um, it was horrible. And finally, I was able to break loose from this and stand up. Although I was injured, I was able to walk. And then he came running to me and he said, I feel, I feel odd. There's something wrong here. And I said, yes, there's something wrong. That, you know, I described what was going on. I said, you need to get me out of here. It's quick. I, I need to get out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. Mm. So we, we got into the car and we were driving away. And I said, what is this place? And he told me uh, this was the site of the uh, murder hotel. Uh, where Dr. H. H. Holmes, who was the, oh. America's first mass murderer, had built this hotel for the Chicago World's Fair in the 1890s. And he murdered 300, up to 300 men, women, and children, tortured them in, this, mm. in the dungeons of this, this fake hotel, really, is what it was. Mm. And uh, so his, you know, I, I would guess, earthbound, malevolent spirit was still there, and all those tortured souls were, were there. And because I didn't protect myself, I, I was not only psychically attacked, I was physically, physically attacked. Changed. It manifested oh. into a physical, you know, driving me into this, you know, like I was going down into this dungeon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's, I always say it's a cautionary tale. I told my, my students, my paranormal students when I got back, uh, and I, was, I still had some kind of lingering energy on me from right. you know, that. And two of the ladies in my class are, they were working psychics, you know? And so they said, they got, so they said, you have to go get a spiritual cleansing or something mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you're making mm -hmm. us sick. You know, the, the, the energy that's mm -hmm. still attached to you. So uh, I knew a, a, a Peruvian shaman and I, I went to her and she did a, a cleansing and it was, yeah, it helped immediately. Because yeah. uh, I had, I had just said, I didn't do any protection. I just, I was mm. letting my, my ego drive me, you know, mm. and I was going to impress this guy somehow. And that's mm. how it, how it uh, got, got set up. And uh, yeah, so that, that was a, a very, very negative uh, experience and mm. just goes to show you how you have to question things and you have to, you know, obviously I, I don't blame the producer because he wanted dramatic stories. <laughs> that's what they wanted, you know? The last thing in his mind was I was going to get hurt, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but anyway, that, that, that is what happened. But I, I, I blame myself really for, I, I, I know better, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, and so, I, but now if he would have told me that was the, I probably would, I don't know. I would have been cautious. Yeah. I would have, yeah. you know, you would have been, you would have gone and ready and prepared. And yes. I've actually heard about that place and didn't he create it? He built it so there were traps in it and, yes. and mazes and people yep. couldn't escape. Yeah. Nasty, nasty. Yeah. He was, he was terrible. And, and they, mm. you know, I read a book, uh, there's a, a good book about, well, a good book. It's a scary book. Uh, it's called Devil in the White City. Uh, it's about this him. And uh, apparently while he was in prison, he, his face started to change and become, mm. he, he described that he was becoming to look like, a, like Satan or looking like a devil. But, right. you know, so he was, yeah, obviously a, a very sinister and, and uh, evil person. And, mm. or maybe that, you know, there's an evil entity that was driving him, you know, that probably that was still attached to that area. And uh, yeah, that, I was just going to say, I was yeah. just going to say to you, it's the land, something on that land. Yes. That's what I got. Ta taken away from the Native Americans, you know, that's, there's a lot probably of. probably a sacred area. There's a lot of negative energy in Chicago. In fact, other, he took me to other places, not as scary as that place, but there was like a, a demonic, uh, uh tattoo parlor i picked up on stuff right away and it was mm. it was extremely creepy and i mm. you know and i i actually got some of the information right that he knew about that a man had been murdered and there was these uh satanic bikers that hung out there and this when we were there filming i went up to touch the iron there's like two gargoyles on either side of the entrance and i was like touching the iron gate in front of the door i was just kind of touching it and and it was dark. I, there wasn't anybody in, uh, inside the room behind it. I could see in there. And all yeah. of a sudden, this lady appeared. Uh, she was a young lady. Uh, she would have been a rather attractive lady, but she had so many tattoos all over her face and her arms and everything. And she had black hair with red and yellow to make it look like flames. Right. You know? And she suddenly appeared and said, what was I doing there? And I, I couldn't lie. I said, well, I'm, I'm a psychic and we're filming. <laughs> That's what I said. I was so caught off. I was like, where did she yeah. come from? I didn't even see anybody in there. All of a sudden she's there. And then she goes, oh, that's cool, but you can't come inside. And I said, no, no, I don't want to come inside. She said, okay. And then she went and then disappeared. She was gone. So, oh. but that was, yeah, that was that same trip. It was, it was, uh, it was scary, but it wasn't as scary as the, uh, the murder hotel. <laughs> These are really, really cool stories. So what other experiences have you had? Yeah, other types of experiences. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I've had, you know, full-bodied apparitions. You know, uh, I went on a, 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 if you're talking about, you know, apparitions, that's what you meant other than alien stuff. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, I went on a job interview before I got the job here. I went on a job interview in uh, New London, New Hampshire, in the in the northeast of the United States, and uh, I uh, a place called Colby Sawyer College, and I uh, uh, I got there kind of late in the afternoon, early evening, and uh, the caretaker guy met me at the bus stop. I took a bus there from Boston, and. Uh, he was going to take me to my hotel. And I said, okay. And then I saw this creepy old building, like built in the late 1700s, early 1800s with a bell tower on a little hill. And, and it was early in the spring. So there wasn't any uh, 
any leaves yet. So there's like this scary looking tree in front of it. Right. And I said, where's the hotel? And he said, well, you're going to be staying at the old Academy building. And I said, that place. And he said, yeah, the whole thing looked like a Stephen King novel, like a scene <laughs> from a Stephen King. novel. I just already, already, I knew it was going to be uh, exciting. So, <laughs> so he took me there and he, and I, you know, got my bag out and I, he walked me upstairs, said, this is the room you're going to be staying in. A beautiful place, you know, well-preserved, the furniture, antique furniture, this really high bed, you know, it was just beautiful, mm. well-preserved. And uh, I said, uh, who else is staying here? And he said, nobody. And I, I, okay, I'm the only one staying here. And he said, yeah. He said, I'll come by in the morning to pick you up. I said, all right. So I, <laughs> I got ready for bed. I would brush my teeth and I, you know, I got ready and I was reading a book and all of a sudden I started hearing uh, like voices downstairs. I was on the second floor on and people walking on the wooden uh, old creaky wooden floor and uh, like chairs shuffling around. So I went downstairs and it stopped. And then I went back to bed and I thought, oh, it's just my imagination, I guess. And then it started again. And then I got to the top of the stairs and I said, I don't know what his name was, Al or something. I said, Al, is that you? Who is down there? And, and once again, it stopped. So that went on most of the evening. It just kept, you know, I heard like there were people, lots of people downstairs, chairs shuffling mm -hmm. around the sound of people. So um, the next day, I went to get a cup of coffee before the guy was going to pick me up. And there was a street sweeper there and he was from New Hampshire. He had that New Hampshire accent, which I can't do. It's a very unique accent, English or, you know, American English accent. And uh, he, uh, he said, uh, why are you here? And I said, I'm here for a job interview. And he said, where are you staying? I said, in the old Academy building. And he goes, uh-huh. Did they tell you it was haunted? And I said, no, they didn't bother to tell me that, but I can tell you for sure it's haunted because I heard <laughs> all this stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, it's one of the most haunted places in New England. And I said, oh, great. And but I survived the night. So I thought I'd be OK. And I did the job interview, whatever. It took too long. I missed the bus. So they said, guess what? You're going to have to stay overnight one more night. I said, OK. <laughs> Once again, I was in the in this old building, right? The old academy building. Uh, so it started the next night, same pattern, you know, the voices, the, you know, moving around of chairs and, and then this old, uh, like the sound of an old Victrola, you know, like those wind up old Victrolas, yes. you know, you know, this old creepy music. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, how am I going to get any sleep? So I just pulled the covers over my head <laughs> and, and then I said, okay, it started to, it, it's like the noise died down. I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll catch a break. So I dropped the covers and then in the corner of the room, there was this old woman, an apparition of a woman, full bodied apparition, you know, like a hologram, you know, she's semi-transparent yeah, yeah. and she's just standing there looking at me. She's dressed like a Puritan woman. She's got this all dark clothing with the bonnet and just looking at me very sternly. She didn't say anything. And I, she didn't respond when I said something I said, I I'm leaving in the morning, ma'am. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I don't want to disturb you or whatever. And uh, she was there. And after a few minutes, then she went away. Right. So the next morning I made it through the night. Oh, I think I called my now my ex-wife, but I called her and I said, all this stuff is happening. And she said, you need to get out of there. And I said, <laughs> I said, I can't, there's no place else to stay. What am I going to do? I've had other ghost experiences. So I, you know, I think I can make it. Well, the next morning I got up and I looked around upstairs and there were portraits like a portrait gallery. And I was drawn to this one portrait and I walked to it and there she was, there was the, 
Susan Colby, the founder of the college, at that time it was a oh, women's wow. college. She mm. didn't like me there because it was a women's college and she didn't want a man sleeping in that room. So that's why I figured why she didn't want me there. And then I, I didn't know this place was haunted other than that street cleaner who told me. When I got home, I did some research and found out that uh, it's one of the mo- it is one of the most haunted places in New England. And lots of people, there have been faculty who get snowed in and then they stay at the old academy, but they've had similar experiences. So it's been corroborated by other people. But it was uh, a very pronounced, clear, full-bodied apparition. And there's, there's just no denying it. You know, it's not like you catch a glimpse of something. It's, yeah. She was there and she's connected and there's other evidence. There's her portrait there and other people telling you and all the other noises and, you know. I, I think it was the Victrola, other than seeing her, it was the Victrola that was the really the most frightening sound, you know, just so unexpected, you know. Yeah. So that, that, that sounds like that's residual. Yes, I think, because yeah, she didn't communicate with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all just, you know, captured there in that, in, that, in that building. Now, since then, they've turned it into an office building for the city of New London, New Hampshire. And uh, but there's been new reports that other things are happening there now. They moved all the old furniture out, but that didn't, you know, there's still some residual energy there. Yeah. So a little different, but still, that's the latest thing I heard from there. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. That must have been, uh, uh, yeah, you must have, well, I guess by that stage, you had used been used to being yeah. around spirits. So I didn't phase you as much as it might have phased, but still scary enough, though. Yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, I knew that uh, she wasn't going to hurt me and the sounds weren't going to hurt me. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, it's it's discomforting. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to you know go to sleep uh, because you have these, you know, this uh, this thought that, you know, it's so out of the or even though I've had those experiences before. And and uh, I uh, uh, oh, I forgot to say the street sweeper told me after he told me it was haunted. He said, uh, yeah, last week there was a lady in for an interview. They put her up there. And she didn't make it through the night. They, she came out of the thing in the middle of the night screaming and the sheriff had to come and they took her to another town and put her in a hotel. So, oh. so that was that was before my second night. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> Maybe, oh. <laughs> yeah. So I but I, I, I made it. <laughs> I, I, I lived through it and was able to write about it and and uh, and talk about it. But um, yeah, so that was Mrs. Mrs. Colby, Susan Colby. Wow, that's really cool that you were able to name the woman. Mm-hmm. I, I had a kind of a similar experience where I was able to name the spirit, mm-hmm. but this one was seen by uh, one, two, three other people besides myself. Mm-hmm. I've talked about it on the podcast before. My my husband then he's deceased now, but I had my husband in the car, my daughter in the back seat, and we were driving along a cemetery. I was trying to find my great-grandmother's grave in the cemetery in Hamilton. And it was one of the original, it was the original cemetery in Hamilton. And it had this like little road with these grave markers, you know, really big ones that Mm -hmm. you can hide behind on either side. And we were only doing like 10, um, 10 kilometers an hour, five miles an hour or something like that. It was, you know, very slow. And the car was behind us. And all of a sudden, because these grave markers are right on the edge of the road, all of a sudden this really tall woman 
slender woman, really skinny. She looked like she was from the 40s. You know, she had the wavy hair. She had a twin set on. Do you know what a twin set is? It's like a a, a, a top and a cardigan that look the same. That oh, mat. okay. Okay. And yeah. she had pearls around her neck. She had a pleated skirt, tights, and those Irish brogue shoes, you know, the mm-hmm. lace-up shoes that they used to wear in those days. Very practical shoes. She stepped out in front of the car, slammed on the brakes. That <laughs> were going really fast. And I thought I'd hit her. And I sat there for a minute because she fell. She looked mm-hmm. like she fell onto the car. And I sat there for a minute in shock. And Jane, I looked at her and I said, oh, my God, I've hit her. I've hit her. And the car behind us stopped. And the person started, I, I got out and jumped around the front expecting to see this woman lying there, and there was nobody there, nobody <laughs> there. And this guy came up behind us, and he said, it wasn't your fault, I saw her, she's just stepped right out in front of you, there was no way you could avoid her. And so we thought, oh, maybe maybe in the time between, you know, gathering from my shock and, and getting out of the car, she'd crawled away somewhere. So I, I went to the right of the car, because she stepped out, she stepped out from my right side. So I went to the right thinking maybe she'd gone that way. And the gravestone immediately by the road had a picture of her on it. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So yeah. I could, I could, yeah. You got confirmation. It, yeah. yeah. That's really, that's really good. Yeah. When you can piece it together, tie it into, but that is a cool story. Yeah. That's yeah. Really cool. So I, I totally understand how you felt when you, were able to say, oh my God, that's this woman I saw. That's who it was. I have, I have another one. Actually, I'd like your opinion on it because I've told a couple of people and I think I wrote about it and maybe in the second or maybe the first book, but um, I had a, uh, uh, a girlfriend when I was in uh, graduate school and uh, she had some, uh, uh, some issues, you know, some mental problems and, she had tried to commit suicide and she ended up in a, uh, in a mental hospital and she checked herself in and, and so forth. And uh, I went to visit her and uh, this was in Seattle. I was living in Seattle um, and uh, at the time after graduate school, actually. And uh, I went to visit her and uh, I was trying to have a nice conversation with her. There were other patients there that were being quiet, playing checkers or watching yeah. TV. But there was this one man who came in there and his name was George. And uh, he had really his hair was all messed up. And he was kind of a kind of a thin, slender man with these big uh, wire rim glasses. And he was very loud and very, you know, just talking to everybody. And he was interrupting our conversation and and he was playing the piano and he's he was just he was hyperkinetic. He was everywhere. Yeah. Right? And uh, so I uh, uh, I kept talking to uh to my girlfriend and then she was able to get a pass so we could uh, go down there was uh, go down the elevator onto the first floor and walk out into the garden and so uh we (laughs) and there was only one way off that floor it was the the psych floor you know and was controlled and so you had to go through a guard he had a special thing he put in the elevator so you could go down uh into the elevator you have to go through the guard and you need a pass and a badge to, to go through there well we went down in the, in the elevator, got out on the first floor. We're walking towards the outside doors towards the garden area. And coming the other direction was this mental patient, George. He was still in his hospital gown or whatever he was wearing up there. And, uh, and he had, there were two women on either side of him that I didn't recognize. And uh, I, I, 
I asked my girlfriend, I said, isn't that George? She said, yeah. I said, well, how did he get down here? He, she, she said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he has a twin. And I said, no, I don't. This is not television. I, you know, that's not the premise here. <laughs> you know, that, that is George. And so I asked him, I, he's walking by and he's laughing and these girls are giggling. And I, I said, I, I said, George, uh, how'd you get down here? And he looked at me with these really wild eyes and he said, I flew. And then he laughed and he walked on with these two girls. So we kept walking and, and, and I said, how did George get down here? Seriously. And sh she said, well, maybe you should report it. And I said, no, I, I, I don't, you know, somebody's the people aren't going to believe me. And, and, you know, so I said, no, I'm not going to report it. So we walked down to the garden and had a conversation, brought her back up and he was, he was there. So I've, I've, I've told this story to a number of people and a couple of people. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of different uh, options, I guess, that could have happened. And I'd mm. just be interested in what your take might, might be. Obviously, this guy, the guard, the guard did not let him. I mean, even if he did let him into that elevator and to only way out to go down there, how did he get ahead of us? Because he was still on the floor when we left. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I'd just be interested in what, what you think uh, process. There's yeah. a couple of things that come to mind. And actually, you you had that in the Anzar book. Oh, yeah. Okay. I wrote that Yeah, down. I remember. Okay. I, as soon as you started talking, I, oh, yeah. I know this. And I was, yeah, there's a couple of things that come to my mind. One is he bilocated, mm -hmm. which, you know, often people who – Often people who who have have mental health issues actually are very spiritual, yep. and that's the reason why they're there because they can't deal with it and they have abilities, mm -hmm. and they just don't know how to cope with them. So a lot of them end up in in psychiatric yeah. hospitals. That's my personal opinion. I, no, I think I think you're I think you're yeah. right. I think and he was really really intelligent too. I mean, mm. you could tell he he just was all over the place, you know. Yes, manic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he could have bilocated or there could have been a time glitch, timeline mm -hmm. glitch. But I, I, I tend to feel that they would have noticed him if he wasn't in there. Yeah, that's, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, I, I, I lean towards bilocation mm -hmm. and that he had these abilities, you know, mm. and, and the other added wrinkle to this whole thing, that's that whole thing. But who were these two ladies that were with him? Were there, that's the question. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Who did they? Because mm. at first, my girlfriend said, "Well, maybe they're nurses." And they, no, they weren't wearing nurse clothes. They looked more like exotic dancers than than uh, you know than nurses. And uh, so I'm wondering if he was able to manifest them with him. You know, maybe that's what he wanted. You know, to be with these two ladies. I was just going to say, yeah, you know, it could have been a projection of his yep. desire. Oh gosh, we could go into the realms of speculation, I here, know. couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was fascinating. It really was, and it just, it's so, and that it was witnessed by my girlfriend too. Yeah. You know, and sh she wasn't, you know, psychic or anything. It just, she was able to see it. You know. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it could, have been, it could have been a projection of his desire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then it begs the question, what is reality? Is mm -hmm. reality as we perceive it or are we living in a holographic reality? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that takes us on a whole different, <laughs> I <know>. a whole <laughs> different, uh, was that a glitch in the matrix? Did you yeah. see something from a past event that he was projecting, you know? But, but it wouldn't have been unless... 
he saw you in that time you know who knows it's really i know it's it's a it's a mind blower it really is and it's really stuck with me i mean i was already you know i mean this was obviously a very uh terrible time in my relationship with my girlfriend i was so felt so bad that she had tried to commit suicide so it was you know she was emotionally traumatized i was traumatized but you know this really did happen you know i mean I, i know i know that it really did happen and and uh so yeah, I, I tend towards the the, the bilocation, and probably yeah. he manifested this from some past thing, or he just conjured them up, you know, with him with his bilocation. And but you're yeah. right, if he if he was missing from the ward, they would have known it because he's he was such a presence. Mm-hmm. If if it was silent, you know, which it would be if he wasn't there, uh, yeah. from what I gathered and what my girlfriend told me that, uh, yeah, that uh, they would notice, the guard would notice, the nurses would notice. Were there stairs there that he could have gone down? But even there, then, he wouldn't have gone as fast. He couldn't as- have gone that fast, you know. And mm. and and the stairs were were guarded as well, and they were you know locked. There was a guy mm. with the key, but you know they're obviously for fire. They couldn't go in the emergency. You'd have to go down the stairs. But they, yeah, you couldn't get down through the stairs either. So there's uh-huh. only one way on and off, and that was that guard uh, at the elevator. And there's no way he could have got down before us when he was on the floor when we left we got down and he was coming towards the elevators the other direction from the other direction as if he had been outside so yeah absolutely (laughs) i I would i would file that under glitch in the matrix isn't it isn't that it yeah it's uh it's it's something i i often think about you know and it just it it's one of those things where you are many things that you think about you know that this you know, the, the, this reality, you know, it's just a, it's an interface to the, the quantum reality, you know, that we have this comfortable interface that we every once in a while you catch a glimpse, whether it's a ghost or an alien mm-hmm. or it's whatever it is. And uh, you realize, oh, this is just a very comfortable little interface like my computer keyboard, you know, but the real stuff that goes on, like the, vo- the toggling of voltages, we don't see any of that. Yeah, All we yeah. see is our nice little keyboard. You know, we don't see yeah, yeah. we don't see the ghost in the machine. <laughs> exactly. Like I yeah. do computer coding, a little bit of coding. Mm-hmm. You don't see the code that mm-hmm. makes this image that we're looking right. at at the moment. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's start with your books then. Mm-hmm. Let's start with your supernatural journey in literature. Mm-hmm. So tell us first what made you start to write your your memories. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, like I said, since age four, I've had paranormal experiences, but they've always been uh, very frequent, but random. You know, I had no control over it. It just happened. And I, I didn't understand why it happened. I tried to study parapsychology, but then life got in the way and I had to do all this work and right. take care of my family and so, so forth. So I always had it on the back burner that I was going to get to it. One of these days, yeah, yeah. But it really took uh, losing a dear friend of mine, childhood uh, buddy. Uh, he was also had uh, had Norwegian parents. Uh, they were immigrants together, and uh, we grew up together in Seattle uh, with immigrant parents. And he passed away in 2016. He had cancer, and he was about my age, so he was too, you know, much too young. And right. uh, he uh, came to me in a vision. Uh, uh, you know, just like you and I are talking, you know, I, I saw him a month after he died and I was very pleased to see him because I was very heartbroken after he passed. He's like one of these really 
uplifting people. He walks into a room and he just lights up the room and not because he's like a overbearing person and loud. He was just a, such a loving person. He was an actor. Right. So he was very good personable. Anyway, he passed away. His name is Gene. Uh, or his name is Gene. He's still around as he reminds me all the time <laughs> in the spirit world. But uh, he came to me in this vision and told me it was time to start telling my stories. And I was kind of reluctant. I said, well, hey, you know, I'd, I could lose my job. People will laugh at me. My colleagues will, you know, laugh at me. The, the college might get rid of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll lose my, my academic standing. And, and he said, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And he even gave me the name of what the book should be called. He said it should be called Timeless because he said we are all timeless. And he said where I am in the spirit world, there's no future. There's no past. It's just mm-hmm. the eternal now. Mm-hmm. And he said, it just all is together. And uh, I said, okay. Uh, and I, I said, uh, uh, I asked him, you know, what a lot of people would say, uh, what's it like to be dead? You know, I just was very blunt. I just said, and he laughed and he said, you know what? I don't, I don't feel like I'm dead. I mean, he said, besides I'm talking to you, right? So there you go. We're talking to each other. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, some of these uh, ghosts things are like, uh, tape loops you know you can't communicate yes. with him but yeah. i could communicate with him clearly and uh so we had a good laugh about that and then uh, he told me it was going to be okay um uh, and he's every time i go on a spirit walk what i call a spirit walk i uh, uh communicate with him and other spirit friends so he's he's with me all the time every time i'm interviewing i always talk about gene and mm-hmm. i feel like he's on my shoulder kind of you know wanting to be in the pit in the shot somehow because you know? right. <laughs> he was an actor he wants he wants his, his screen time but uh so yeah so then i started uh assembling all my stories and i'd written all this down you know most of the things that had happened to me and then i published my uh, first timeless book uh with, i think it was 34 uh yeah 30 i think there was 34 paranormal events in my life uh, all that happened to me not other people and uh, that was the first book. And then that wasn't enough. I had to do a second book. So then I did Timeless uh, Deja Vu, which is the second book. And I went a little bit further. The first book I was kind of reserved. I didn't talk about aliens, for instance. I figured right. I'm just going to dip my toe in the water, you know, a right. little bit. I didn't want to plunge all the way in. And you know, that was my compromise. Gene said, yeah, go yeah. all the way in. I said, no, I'm going to test the water. So the second book, I went a little bit further. Uh, the third book, uh, Timeless Trinity, I started talking about alien uh, events, you know, contact that I've had. And uh, so, I, as I say, I let it all hang out in the third book, Timeless Trinity. And uh, I hadn't really planned to write another book, but um, during this time, I was started these spirit walks, these uh, meditative spirit walks. And for me, I do meditation, but I do it while I'm walking because I, I can't sit still and do the meditation. So... Uh, during the spirit walks, I talked to Gene, I talked to my spirit guides, I talked to, you know, my relatives who passed on. And that's when I decided that I was going to try to contact this uh, person, this entity uh, uh, that I had had a, a, uh, uh, another vision with from 1997 and uh, called the progenitor. That's all I knew. He was called the progenitor. And uh, so I asked Gene, I asked my spirit guides, can you connect me with the progenitor? I'd really like to know more because, and I suspected he was of alien origin. I kind of thought he was, but I didn't want to go there yet too far. Uh, 
and uh, so I, I uh, uh, what happened in 97 was it was a vision just like I had with Gene and a conversation just like you and I are having. Uh, although in the vision I had of the progenitor, he was this kind of proto-human looking entity and he was revolving in space and while I was talking to him. And uh, at that point, he, he sounded very Zen-like to me, like he was saying, there, you know, the bargain for, for peace is war, the bargain for hate is love. You know, the bar- I mean, he's talking like that. And then he's talking about black holes and quasars and how, you know, uh, uh, the one uh, uh, dimension is connected to the other through a black hole, you know, and it comes out as a quasar on the other side. And he was trying to explain all this stuff to me. I wrote it all down. And I even drew the picture of him, but I just kept it. And in, in, that was happening in 97. In 2001, I decided I was going to try to approach a colleague with this information that I had and to talk about the paranormal. And I, I found this lady, Professor, she's a very nice lady, uh, a friend of mine. She was an anthropologist. She studied uh, ancient cultures and, and religion. And so I said, okay, she's a safe person you know, right. to talk to this. At least I thought. And I, I told her the story of the progenitor. I showed her the picture and she just looked at me and said, you're a pretty spacey dude, aren't you? I didn't realize how spacey you were. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, not yeah. say anything. I thought it was, wasn't safe. So it wasn't until t- 2016 that uh, when I had that vision with Gene that I decided now was the time. And right. uh, so, yeah, so my, uh, uh, the fourth book, the Anzar, the progenitor book is that entity. And he, I, I've had a much longer connection with him than just since 1997. He's been around, I think, my whole life. I know 1964, that's when I, uh, based on um, conscious memories, as, as I started thinking about what had happened to me in 1964, uh, I realized that that was him. And then I did a, a, a hypnotic regression. Uh, I did four of them, four different uh, uh of these regressions and that kind of filled in the blanks for me in this, in these stories. But I found out that Anzar, the progenitor has been with me um, at least since 1964, when I was six years old. So what happened in 1964? Well, to make a long story short, I was, uh, we had these neighbors. We we lived in Seattle on a hill and uh, there was a, uh, a, a nuclear site at the top of the hill. It was a Nike missile site. Uh, it was, you know, they had Nike missile defense sites and uh, the house just above us, uh, we had some neighbors and my uh, parents, when they'd go places, I would go up there and they would babysit me. Right. And the lady was okay, but the man was creepy. Even at six years old, I knew he was creepy. So, and I just somehow knew, you know, and he would do uh, weird things and kids from the neighborhood would come there and uh, he would give us little Dixie cups filled with what he said was Kool-Aid, but I, I smelled it. Didn't smell right. It smelled like what my parents had, you know, they'd have brandy or something. It smelled right. like that. Now I know that it was alcohol. So mm-hmm. he'd give kids alcohol and then he would go hide in the closet and uh, in the dark closet. And he would, it was not even hide and seek because we knew where he was. And he said, you have to come find me. And he said, well, you're mm-hmm. in the closet. We know where, you, yeah, but you come in there and then you go in the closet with him and it's dark. And, and I mean, you know, basically mm. what he was up to. He was a molester, mm. but I didn't, I didn't know it. I never went in the closet. I was too afraid. I didn't drink the Dixie cup, but right. uh, I, I wanted to tell my parents that I didn't want to go there anymore. So then 
that's when this Anzar the progenitor showed up the first time. And I saw him like a hologram in my backyard the, between that house and my house. And uh, he appeared to me and he, he, and I said, you look like, I remember, I, you look like a monster because he was an alien, looked very tall right, uh, and with the big, you know, slanted eyes. And, and I said, you look like a monster. And he said, uh, well, I'm not the monster. That man in that house is a monster and you need to stay away from him. So he, it was a, he saved me from a, a very right. awful thing that would have happened. And, uh, and I said, well, should I tell my parents? And he, he said, uh, I think you just tell your parents you don't want to go there. And I, and I know that they won't make you go there anymore. So then that was true. So, and I said, well, can I tell them about you? And they said, well, that's up to you. They may not believe that you're talking to me, but you know, you, if you want to, you, you can. But definitely, you're not, I'm going to make sure you don't have to go up there anymore, which was true. I didn't. And he also showed me um, like a holographic image of a ship. And he said that someday you will, you will fly. Someday you will fly. And so I assumed I would, you know, like every kid in the 60s, I thought I was going to go to the moon or something, you know, be an astronaut. Right. As it turned out, I did fly, but it was a helicopter. But, you know, I was still yeah, yeah. A, a pilot. So that's pretty cool. And uh, so that was my first experience. And uh, but it was it was so traumatic. The experience was so traumatic uh, because here I saw this alien entity who I thought was a monster at first. Um, turned out that he, he rescued me, but uh, I didn't understand the whole thing. So I was very traumatized. So for about two years after that, I couldn't speak. I, I stammered. I stuttered so much. I had to go to special uh, uh, speech training for two hours a day. They'd pull me out of my regular class and I'd go to speech training. And thank goodness they had a good speech uh, therapist at my school. And uh, after two years, I could start talking again because I was very reluctant to talk because I could barely get a word out. Yeah. And uh, I did some research in, in the book, I, I, the Anzar book I just published. I did some research on speech pathology. And one of the reasons for children... Uh, suddenly developing that kind of speech impediment uh, is through trauma. trauma. So yeah. I was definitely traumatized. So that's like physical evidence for the, to go along with the conscious memories and then the retrieved subconscious memories. But right. so I've had a very long uh, history with him. I, I've had other uh, alien experiences too. And then all the paranormal experiences, but for the last three years, I've been contacting Anzar through my spirit walks and uh, including just yesterday. So when I took a spirit walk. Right. So, yeah. What did he say to you out of, out of interest? Oh, yesterday? Mm. Yeah. He, he reminded me as he does every single time uh, to keep love in my heart and always operate from a position of love. So mm. that sounds very easy, uh, but uh, it's very hard to do. Because you hear it every, I was in a faculty meeting today and I heard people talking bad about other people. And I just thought, you know, I, I just, that's not the good way to approach it. You got to mm -hmm. help people to understand, you know, and you just got to educate them or help them to understand. They still might not understand, but you, you know, it's best to, right. to have that love in your heart. And, uh, and then he reminded me of the situation uh, here with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the variant, you know, the Delta variant and how it's going to be very, very bad and to be prepared for that and be ready for that. And he's also, he, he kind of 
he tells me, he's been telling me lately and especially yesterday he reminded me that I'm, I'm a bridge. He says, you're, you have to be the bridge. Now he's always told me that you have to be the light. And he says that all the time, be the light. And uh, so that makes sense to me in, in a way that, you know, you have to help illuminate, you know, the darkness, you know, try to bring, you know, it goes along with this idea of keeping love in your heart, you know, to illuminate and to be the yeah. light in people's lives, in your own life, your loved ones, your neighbors, your friends. But he said, you have to be the bridge. You have to do more. You can't just illuminate. Now you have to make connections, you know, so you got warring factions, you know, or you have like a, a physical bridge, you know, you got two remote outcroppings, you bring them right. together. Right. And uh, what's interesting to me is since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated with bridges. Right. And I even wrote a play called The Bridge about the Golden Gate Bridge and the problem with suicide on the Golden Gate Bridge. And oddly enough, and I just thought about it now, uh, when I was growing up, we had this, um, we had these old Norwegian friends that my parents had that they came over with on the boat to, to the States. And there was this lady and, and a husband who, uh, a man who they never had children. She was a very nice older lady. And every time I came over or she came over to our house uh, to visit my parents, she would say, let's make the bridge. And she didn't do it to anybody else. She just, it was like her little thing to me. And she'd go like this with her hand. And then I would come up and go like that and we'd make a bridge. So it's like been a theme my whole life. I didn't realize the importance of it uh, right. until later in my life. So those are a couple of the things he's, he's told me. He's also told me uh, that um, it, he kind of gives me, uh, I'm not going to call them predictions, but they border on prophecies, but they're more like preparations mm -hmm. because he often tells me uh, predictions can be wrong, but preparations are never wrong. Mm -hmm. So he's warned me that uh, here in the United States that we're, bordering on on a civil war and mm. because we have we're so divided and it's it, it's a, other places in the world too but i know the united states the best and we are so divided more divided than i even remember us being in the 1960s during the vietnam war and right. all that we're, we're more divided now at a deeper level you know mm. even a religious level i mean it's really spiritual level very very divided so uh and he's uh, you know he he tells me to be prepared for that and do that's why he wants me to be the light to be the bridge mm. uh he has made some predictions you know that uh like covid he didn't tell me there would be covid 19 he said a year before uh covid uh became a thing in the early uh, you know last year a year before that he told me that there'd be a series of calamities that would occur and to be prepared uh and uh as it as it turned out he said in and he said, one of the calamities will cause the deaths of millions of people. I didn't know what that calamity would be, mm. but I, I've done enough research about what they call retro causation, where uh, if something really terrible happens, uh, that it, it reverberates because time, it, you know, there's no past, there's no, it's all together. Yeah. It, it, sensitive people can pick up on things, you know, mm. and, and he helps guide me with that. So if I get an intuition, I think something bad's going to happen. He says, well, be prepared because there's a possibility that could happen. And then when I say, well, shouldn't I tell a bunch of people? And he said, well, be careful because predictions can be wrong. And if you're wrong mm. just by a little bit, people are going to think, you know, you're, you're crazy or, you know, something's wrong with you when really you're just trying to help. Yeah. And, I, and I've had people do that. I've said, you know, when, 
uh, I think it was in January of, of, uh, of uh, 2020, before there were even any cases of COVID-19, I said, this, this is probably one of the calamities. This, this is one of the calamities. And mm-hmm. I had people attack me on Facebook and say that I'm exaggerating. And, you know, it was, so I've been very careful, you know, uh, saying this. I just, that's why I always say, you know, that it's better to be prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's too many variables to accurately predict exactly what's going to happen because there's free will and there's other things that, yeah. that enter into it. So anyway, th- those are a few of the things. He's also told me some, I don't know how much you want me to say about what he said, but um, he's, uh, um, he's talked about, uh, you know, this report that came in the United States that came out uh, the end of June uh, on UAPs, uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, what used right. to be called UFOs, but now the government had to call it something else because they were too embarrassed to call them UFOs. So uh, same thing. But anyway, uh, he told me that the report would be very uh, disappointing. Hmm. And, and it was, but I can read between the lines. You know, I used to work in the government, so I can I read between the lines. And there's some interesting clues in there when you really read it. Oh, but, yes. But he told me, uh, he said the problem, and, and, and if you look at it, you see it mentions threat, uh, threats, I think probably eight times in there, threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way our government looks at it. And I'm not surprised if other you know, governments around the world look at it the same way that they don't look at it as a, an opportunity to advance as a civilization, as human beings, they see it as a threat. And, uh, you know, just like the old movies, you know, when the aliens came, we'd roll out the tanks and start shooting at them, you know, just ridiculous, you know, mm-hmm. but that's how we, we look at it. And Ansar has told me, and I want to get the quote right. Uh, he said, extraterrestrial technology and wisdom are precious gifts for all, not a strategic advantage for the few. That's actually a good quote. I do know that there are factions, that those who control the governments behind the scenes, the governments really don't control much. They're just figureheads. They take their orders from elsewhere. But your government is really trying to ramp up the fear factor Mm -hmm. to make people scared of star people, Mm -hmm. scared of beings who use other, you know, vehicles to get here. And and not all star people need to travel in ships. Many don't. They can just travel by by thought. But what they're doing is they're trying to create fear in people. And they're using that as an excuse to weaponize to create more weapons and to control reality as we currently know it. That's my understanding. It's a bit deeper than that, but, you know, I I don't tend to go into a lot of my podcast because that's not what my podcast is about. But no, I, I, I agree with you that that the easiest way to control people is through fear or anger. Mm -hmm. One of the two or hope, Mm -hmm. you know, both, if Mm -hmm. you can manage it, then, then they can really control people, you know, alternate between anger and fear, you know, yeah, well, anger is only ever a secondary emotion, yep. isn't it? And it only ever covers fear, hurt, or pain. Yep. Or yeah, it is a secondary emotion. It comes hard yeah. on the heels of the fear, so you don't often yeah. distinguish yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, th- I think you're and right. I think that they're, they're you know, that, um, well, I, I have a friend of mine uh, who's former FBI, so he still gets the, you know, I guess once you're FBI, you're always FBI. It's kind of yeah. in the intelligence community. And he told me that they're busy trying to figure out 
how they can strap a bomb to this technology. They want to l- learn how to weaponize it. And uh, so th- that's, that's a fruitless effort. So if they can't do that, they at least want, like you say, manipulate people through fear. And, uh, and, and, it's, and it's so, uh, you know, as Anzar says, this is an opportunity to take a leap of consciousness for all of us, you know, to take a leap of consciousness and evolve as, as you know, to all together take this leap of consciousness. And there's so many uh, forces that want to uh, stop that from happening, because if that happens, yes. people are going to realize how powerful they are and how mm-hmm. special they are. And, and they mm-hmm. won't be able to be so easily controlled anymore once you take the blinders off, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. I'm going to say something. When I first read your book, I was like really dubious, not because, I I mean, you know, I've I've had star people encounters my entire Mm -hmm. life. Until I heard your story just now about you being six, and you probably mentioned it in the book, but I I may have um, missed Mm -hmm. or, or not read that correctly, but because you never question him. You never say, how do I know you're telling me the truth? How can I trust you? Mm-hmm. How can I, you know, believe what you and, and one thing that I always teach my people is you must question everything, even what I tell you, question mm-hmm. it. And how does it fit in your heart? How do you feel when you when you listen to it? How does it sit with you? Does it make you feel comfortable? Does, but now I understand why you don't question him because he he gave you that trust from as a child mm-hmm. so you have trusted him because of that incident yeah and i've i've you know i've i've had a lot of experiences including you know demonic experiences so i i feel that by experience i i know <laughs> what that's like you know anything that's that's malevolent uh even if they come across as being kind of nice uh it doesn't take long for the true colors to come mm. through sometimes immediately and they just work on greed or whatever, you know, vice yeah. a person might have, whatever. But uh, with him, uh, you know, and I've had, a, I've had a, a person ask me, they, they say, how do you know he's not a, like a fallen angel or demonic thing? And I said, well, why would a demon every single time I talk to them, tell me and remind me to keep love in my heart and always operate from a mm-hmm. position of love and actually have that help me in my life? you know, where I have mm-hmm. uh, adopted that and things go much better in my relationship at home, at work, in, in the world, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's just the way to go. And, and uh, so I, and, and the other thing, the other reason I, I know that, uh, although I've, you know, I've asked Jean, because <laughs> I trust Jean too, I know Jean, so I, and, and yeah. uh, I asked Jean about, I have, I don't know if I put it in the book, but I did ask Gene about Anzar and he, he said, no, he's here with me. He's, yeah, so, I, so I, I, remember reading I got it. confirmation from, from Gene too. And, and so, uh, but there are people who say, you know, any kind of contact with spirits is divination and that's all, they're all demons, you know, trying to trick you. And uh, none of my experiences with Gene or with Anzar or the others, you know, my parents who I've talked to also in, in, in uh, these meditative states, none of them have told me to do bad things or say bad Mm. things or what I know in my heart to be bad or or do bad things. You know, none of it, it's been none of that. And then this, so that's how I I have uh, confidence. And 
the other thing, and I, I think you, you read the book. So you've in the introduction to the book, the, the uh, foreword to the book, a friend of mine uh, saw Anzar. So I have that confirmation mm, too. So right. that, because there's always in, in the paranormal experiences, there, there's, I mean, not every weird thing that happens is paranormal. Sometimes it's just a weird right. thing that just happened, you know, so I can't look Absolutely. at it. So you, you always look for confirmation. So I, I, I invited Anzar to come to a CERO meeting, the, the Close Encounter resource organization that I belong to, all experiencers, you know, here in Southern California. And I asked Anzar to come. I said, I'd like to see who sees you. Does anybody see you? I'm, I'm just going to, at, at the end of the meeting, I got up and said, did anybody uh, see anything? And because it's a zero mm. meeting, nobody thought it was like some, you know, some guy just sitting next to me or something. They knew I was talking about right. some kind of uh, entity. And this one lady uh, named Lucinda, Lucy, my friend Lucy, she said, uh, yeah, who's the big uh, native looking dude behind you? And Anzar is very tall. One of his manifestations mm. that he's very tall. And he's proto-human looking. And she said, "Native, at, 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 meaning Native American, you know, he has that kind of look. And, uh, and I said, that's Anzar. And she said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, that's Anzar. And then she pulled out her driver's license and she showed me that she lived on, the street she lived on was Via de Anzar, the way to Anzar. Interesting, wasn't it? So that was, that was and then she, yeah, she was able to, and she's a shaman in the Native American tradition, Lucy is. And uh, she talked to me quite a bit later because I said, I got to talk to you more about this. You're the only other person that's seen him other than me. So we had some lengthy conversations and uh, we talked about this integration process uh, that she warned me about, you know, because when you do a lot of communication with the, with, the per, with the particular entity, you have to be very careful. And just like you said, how do you know that this, is really who they say they are and it's, you know, actually helping you or helping others. And so I took that process very slow. And actually what the integration process is, is not that I lose my, my autonomous being who I am. It's just that there's a, like a, a, a quicker connection between the two of us. So, and in the way, the way Anzar says it, he says an aspect of you is an aspect of me. That's what he tells me. And he says that we are related. So, that that's what I've, I've taken from, from the, these experiences. And um, I, uh, but, you know, even a person with all the paranormal experiences that I've had every once in a while, you have to stop and ask is, is this real? You know, you have to, mm -hmm. you know, pinch yourself and stuff like that to make sure. And I I'm lucky in that uh, uh, ginger uh, is not uh, a member of Ciro. She's not, she doesn't, do meditative walks. She's just a very practical, very creative lady, you know, very nice. Uh, right. And so she's very supportive of me, but she also grounds me. So I don't, you know, I'm not in the ethereal world all the time. Right. You know, I, I have right. to come down to earth, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that helps quite a bit, but she's very supportive. And I know there's some people who are, have had all these experiences and they're not as lucky. They have maybe a, a spouse or a friend or a, a significant other who isn't as supportive and won't let mm. you talk about it and, you know, that type of thing, which would be very stifling to a sensitive uh, person who is intuitive and has these experiences oh, and connections. Yeah. So, Right, absolutely. So, that, yeah, so that, that, that really was like... 
niggling at me the whole time when I was reading your book. Mm-hmm. I was going, he never questions this guy. Mm-hmm. He never questions him. How does he know he is who he says he is? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I'm a medium myself mm-hmm. and I, you know, so I don't question that these things happen because I know mm-hmm. from my own experience they do, although I don't talk about them a lot in this podcast and I certainly don't have mediums on um, my show because I'm not here to promote. Right anyone who has a business right you right. understand what i'm saying but it doesn't mean that i don't know that it's not real because i yeah. do the other thing the other thing that i have to say that just triggered me a little bit is the use of the term light all the time mm-hmm. light you have to be the light you have to mm-hmm. and the reason why is because in this reality in this dimension People are really terribly socially engineered by those who control this reality. Mm-hmm. And the term light has been bandied about so much mm-hmm. that everybody automatically assumes that if something is light and bright, it's positive, it's good, it's loving, it's got your best interests at heart. And if something is dark, it's automatically negative, nasty, malignant, and that's not actually true. That's not actually true. It's what's been hammered into people in this reality. Light isn't always good and dark isn't always bad. Well, you can't have one without the other. That's for sure. That's this reality. (laughs) It's definitely a duality Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. That's my knowing. You know what I mean? No, I I understand. Yeah, I do. And the thing is, light has been, like, it's used in all the Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. It's propagandized. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves, I've got to say, this, is when people say love and light. Mm-hmm. And you know they don't mean it. It's just a catchphrase because it makes them look like they're spiritual, you know? Mm-hmm. Most don't mean it. So it's like things like, and so that triggered me. That's my, that was my, that was a trigger for me. It's, I'm not saying that what, what you wrote wasn't valid or general. It just that's just triggered me. No, it's a all. it's a good it's a very valid and good point. I will add that the research that I did because like uh, I mean there's 280 footnotes or endnotes in that book. I did a lot of research. I mean it's 403 pages. But uh, what I I did some research about the light, and I, I don't call myself a light worker. You know, I say be the light because that's what Gene says. That's what. Uh, what yeah. uh, Anzar says, but what I what I found out is that our DNA emits light, which is very interesting to me because uh, that may be a, a connection in how uh, you know telepathy works, how telekinesis works, how this stuff that we are that we our our very uh, internal structure, our D, our very DNA uh, emits light. So it, it's more than just uh, you know light and dark. Uh, you know, like you said, it's not just, you know, dark being being evil. You can't have one without the other. And uh, what would we be if we never had the the nighttime? You know, we need the nighttime as well. And mm-hmm. growing up uh, with Norwegian parents, um, we have, uh, you know, I've been in Norway during the so-called dark time. I think it's a beautiful right. time of year. I mean, it's the sun doesn't come up for three months. And, and uh-huh. I've lived there during that dark time. And... Uh, the only negative thing I can, because what happens is you get adjusted to it and then you start to, the starlight is enough for you. The yeah. moonlight is enough, especially if there's a blanket of snow. It's like, it's perfectly, it's a blue kind of light. It's very calming right. in a way. 
and people use a lot of candles and stuff. So, you know, it's very cozy people in the wintertime during the so-called dark time, they, they visit each other much more and they realize they got to come together. And it's a very, and then of course that, you know, for the the Christian people, there's the Christmas time and so forth. Uh, So it's very uh, kind of a magical time. The only problem for me during that winter time when I lived there during the winter, the two times is that it's hard to, to get it's <laughs> you want to sleep all the time. I feel like a bear. I want to hibernate, you know? Right. Uh, whereas the, I've been there during the uh, summer when the sun, when the sun doesn't go down and then you have the opposite problem. You, 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 do, you can't sleep, you know, cause I, I'm like a rooster, you know, I see the light, I'm going to be up. Right. So, you know, at okay. two o'clock in the morning, I'm out cutting the grass and making people upset, you know, because <laughs> I just feel so energized, you know, I'm out, you know, it's perfectly light. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, I have a very natural, I understand what, what you're saying. And it's not, you know, th- that simple. And, uh, and, you know, malevolent entities can portray themselves really as anything. And, uh, you always hear about the stories of, you know, they appear as little girls or something, you know, something that seems so innocent, you know, and, and it's really not. But I, I've had uh, experience, you know, with malevolent entities and uh, it's pretty clear what, what they are, you know, no matter how they portray themselves. It's, it's pretty clear what they mm. are because of what they do. And what they do is more important than what they look like or what they say or even what they say. Absolutely. And mm. Yeah, I, And isn't it the same with living people as well? Yes. Yes. In fact, I, I often say kind of jokingly, but only half jokingly, that it's, it's, it's easier to talk to the dead than living people. <laughs> they're, they're not hiding anything okay. for the most part. You know, the people mm. that have passed away, they're just, mm. they, they just want somebody. They see you have the ability. They see what I call the radar dish over my head. And they, yes, oh, I just yeah. want, I want to talk to somebody. I, all these other thousands of people are walking by and then I see you and you're the one I need to talk to. So, uh, and, and of course I have to protect myself because, uh, I can't talk to every, everybody, you know, I mean, they're all around us all the time. So it's, you have to Mm -hmm. turn it off. I always say, you know, you Mm got to learn to turn it off before you learn how to really turn it on because turning it off is more, is the most important thing. So you can rest, you can do other things. You can't, Absolutely. And it's all about boundaries. Yes, setting boundaries. Tell, yes, exactly. I run a Facebook group. Well, actually, that's what this podcast started mm-hmm. from, where I, you know, try and help people as much as I can uh, on a spiritual level. They come with questions, they, you know, and it's, you know, nobody's ever charged for it. It's just a really good place. And I've got some wonderful people there. And so I always say to people, well, one, never assume that something is what they portray themselves as being. Never assume that that child you see in your house, and this comes up in the group all mm-hmm. the time, is a child. Mm-hmm. In fact, just recently, I had a lady who had these children in her house, but they weren't children. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, have you ever questioned who they are? She said, no, <laughs> they're just children. And I said, why do you assume that they're children because they portray themselves to be children? Mm-hmm. And she was having issues in her mm-hmm. home. And so I said to her, one, you must always question whoever comes around you, whether you see them physically, with your psychic eyes, whether they appear in front of you in a physical form, whether you just feel them. You should always, always, always question. That's why mm-hmm. I was, you know, like when I was reading your book, I was going, he's not questioning, he's not questioning. This could be anybody feeding him anything. Yep. And there are so many imposters out yeah. there. 
apart from your connection with Anza, have you had like physical extraterrestrial experiences? Yeah, I've had, uh, uh, let's see, in 1973, I would say it was a classic kind of abduction. But even that, I think, had a positive uh, spin to it. Uh, right. What what was happening in 1973 is it was Christmas Eve and my uh, aunt and uncle from Norway, from Oslo were visiting. And that's a whole other interest. She was a very fascinating person. But um, anyway, uh, everybody was upstairs. I went down to my downstairs bedroom. This is in Seattle. And uh, it was probably around midnight or so. My cat, who always slept with me, jumped off the bed. And he was a big, fat cat. So he jumps off and he woke me up, you know. And when I looked in the doorway, there was my aunt. And I thought, what is my aunt doing in the doorway of yeah. my room? Uh, and uh, But then, all of a sudden, it wasn't my aunt. The, her face kind of morphed mm. into this, uh, I would best describe it as, as like a reptilian-looking face. And it wasn't just her. There was like these little entities around her. Next mm. thing I knew, I was, you know, it's classic uh, uh, abduction thing. I, I felt frozen, you know, paralyzed. Mm. And then I was levitating above the bed. And the next thing you know, I'm rising up like through the, 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 all the floors of the house, through the ceiling into the heavens. I end up in, a, in what I describe as a, as a craft, you know, it's mm. round. There's like this pillar in the middle. There's like an exam table. Uh, and around this exam table, there's the little grays, the little alien guys. Yeah. And there's an insectoid doctor. He looks like a cross between right. a praying mantis and a Jerusalem cricket, the way I described it. That's what he looked right. like. And they had some kind of apparatus on my head, kind of like headphones, but they're more obviously more sophisticated. But the, something about it was uncomfortable for me. Mm. So uh, I, I must have telepathically because I, I wasn't able to speak telling the insectoid doctor that it hurt. So then he admonished the, the little gray guys and they took that apparatus off of my head. And uh, at that point I, I remember asking, and part of this is conscious memory, part of it's retrieved memories, right? right. So a combination. Um, and I uh, asked the, uh, the doctor, uh, I said, what's going on here? And he said, well, you're, this is special processing. We're doing special processing. And he said, you don't need to know in, in anything else. And at that point, he just kind of touched my forehead. And then next thing you knew, I was back in my bed. And my cat came back. Uh, so that was in, in 1973. So that's kind of a classic scenario, I guess, if you will. Uh, mm. I, I called him for years. I called him Dr. Bug. That's just all I called him. And uh I've, I've talked to other people now who've had, who've met this insectoid doctor or somebody like him, you know, and uh, like Terry Lovelace, who's, uh, he's well known uh, in the UFO community here. He was a former uh, attorney general, assistant attorney general of Vermont and also of American Samoa. And uh, he was a prosecuting attorney and, you know, he's this legal guy and uh, Air Force veteran as well. And he was abducted. Mm -hmm. and he had an encounter with the with the insectoid doctor. But anyway, so that was 1973. 1977, it was a dual experience. I was on a road trip uh, with my friend, I call him Ernie. And uh, uh, we were driving from Seattle 
through uh, to Salt Lake City and then to Las Vegas and then to Los Angeles and then back up the coast. You know, kind of, that was our road trip. We right. were 18 years old. We were just on this crazy road trip. So we got a late start. We, only, we got to Idaho and it was getting dark and uh, we had a near head on collision. So we realized, oh, my gosh, uh, we got to pull over and get some sleep. Well, we didn't have enough money for a hotel. We didn't bargain for a or we didn't really plan too well our trip money wise. <laughs> so we, you know, so we said, ah, we don't really want to spend a hotel. So we'll find a campground. So we drove off the road at this place called uh, Black Pine Peak, which sounds kind of mysterious already. Black mm-hmm. Pine Peak in Idaho, the uh, wilderness of Idaho. So we pull off on this dirt road. We keep going. We keep, we never find the campground. Finally, there's this clearing and we just pull off to the side of the dirt road. And we're too tired to put up a tent. It's too dark. So we just put our sleeping bags over us as we recline the seats and try to fall asleep. Next thing you know, and this is conscious memories and retrieved. And also I talked to Ernie about it too, about what he remembers. So right. it's a combination of those things. So uh, I, uh, I remember we were trying to sleep. And then at a certain point, we, we saw lights, but the lights were coming from odd directions. At first, I thought there was another car that pulled up, but the lights were too high mm-hmm. and they were in, pointing in odd directions. And then there was like, there was people around the car. But the weird thing was, and this is conscious memory. I couldn't move. I couldn't like do anything about it. And uh, I remember the weird smell and some weird sounds. Mm-hmm. So those are the things I consciously remember. Uh, I, when I was going to write the story, I, uh, uh, I contact and I, I did a, a hypnotic regression and found out the whole story. But uh, after I did that, I, I called my friend Ernie and I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years, but I said, uh, uh, Ernie, what do you remember about that trip and about that, that camp where we stayed overnight? And he told me mm-hmm. the same thing, the weird lights. It's like there's people outside uh, and that he felt like he couldn't move. And, uh, and I, during the, the regression, she had me as Yvonne Smith, a very famous uh, hypnotic regressionist here in Southern California. She asked me, um, okay, you're back in that car. What do you see? So I described, you know, the, obviously there were non-human entities around there and there was a craft mm. out there. And that's why the lights were in a weird coming from above rather than like a car. And then she said, uh, turn your head and tell me what is your friend Ernie doing? So in, you know, my subconscious, I turned my head, you know, and I said, Ernie's gone. I said, Ernie's gone. And, sh- and that's when I realized that Ernie had been abducted. I wasn't abducted, but he was. Oh, wow. So uh, when I talked to Ernie about this, after he took, you know, corroborated all the uh, conscious memories I had, I told him, you know what, Ernie, I think you were abducted. And oh my gosh, he was so mad at me when I told him that he said, if you would have told me that, from the beginning, instead of, you know, this kind of sneaky way that you started talking about it, I would have refused to talk to you. I don't want to talk about that. And I think it's really terrible that you're, you know, and if you're going to write uh-huh. this story, you can't, cause that's not his real name. He said, you can't use my name. Mm-hmm. And he was just, you know, really, really mad. And I said, I'm really sorry. I'm, I, you know, I feel bad. And <clears throat> so he hung up. I kept trying to contact him, email him. And finally he emailed me back and he said, the reason uh, he said, I do remember something. He said, and the reason you feel bad is because you let your, your best friend get abducted. <laughs> That's what he said in the email. And then he said, uh, I do remember feeling paralyzed and uh, that these alien entities told me this one uh, is quite a squealer. 
you think he'd never seen a set of pincers before. Pincers, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he said, the reason you feel bad is because you let me be abducted and, and uh, I don't want my name to be used. And, that, and, I, and then I thought, well, he's going to, we're going to talk about it together. No, he said that was it. He wouldn't talk to me. I've tried. That's a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He just hasn't contacted me. He was left in a very angry note. Uh, so I, I wanted, I remembered that I had written a poem, a couple of poems after this trip. It was kind of an eventful trip, not just that. Uh, and I, I found an old poem that I'd written. I keep all my writing in old notebooks and I found it. And the name of the poem was uh, I sold out to the aliens and I read the poem and at the end of the poem, I mention pincers and it, my blood ran cold. I go, Oh my, I don't remember writing that, but here it is from 1977, this poem I'd written on the sheet of paper. And uh, so I included that in the, in the book, that story. So not only did I have a uh, corroborating, you know, uh, story, at least part of it and, and well, most of it from, Ernie and myself and my hypnotic regression, but I also had this, this, you know, evidence, this documentary evidence, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the form of a poem, but still mentioning what he had, had said. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, uh, yeah, that was in 1977. And then in 1978, uh, this is before, uh, you know, my Anzar or the progenitor thing in 1997, but in 1978, uh, it was a very low point in my life. I had broken up with my girlfriend. I had lost my job. I had a job in Alaska, but I screwed up and I was sent home early. I got another job as a carpenter, but I got fired. I had no, no money. I was living in my brother's garage. My brother was really mad at me because I had no money and I was mooching off of him. You know, I felt really bad. My parents were mad at me because they had a, the, the guy that hired me in Alaska was my dad's friend. And then he got, he called my dad and got really mad at him. So I was, you know, just broken up with my girlfriend. So I was about to, uh, I was about to, to kill myself. I, I mean, that's just what it was. I was just, I had a knife in my hand. I was ready. All of a sudden, uh, out of the floor and connecting to the ceiling was this, like a column of fire particles just shooting up like that. And I, uh, I was just I, stunned. I just didn't know what, what is going on. And there's like this rumbling, like voice, you know, like that. And I thought, whoa, this is some kind of demonic thing or what? That's what I thought, you know, my mm-hmm. conscious memories. I'm thinking about that. And I'm, I'm taken up into this beam, right? And uh, I did a hypnotic regression with that too. And I, I really I had quite a bit of the details already in my conscious memories, but uh what I thought was a column of fire was actually like a particle beam. And I was taken oh out of that garage. The ceiling disappeared of this old dirty garage. And I went up into the stars. I don't remember being in a ship or anything. Mm. And I don't know if I was gone for five minutes or half an hour or an hour or whatever. Next thing you know, I'm on back on this dirty old mattress. Uh, the knife is on the side of the mattress. But I had absolutely no feeling of wanting to hurt myself. I said, I'm not going to. Why would I even think that? In fact, I put it out of my mind. You know, I just didn't know I'm going to make it. I'm going to be okay. So I look at that as an alien contact, but as an intervention Mm. that I was, I I wasn't supposed to do that. And I Mm. understood. So 
Yeah, that was in 1978. So those are some of the most uh, pronounced experiences that I've had, other than my last three years and communicating with with Anzar. So right. So now that that also makes it clearer to me mm-hmm. why you're having this astral connection mm-hmm. with with Anzar. Uh, yeah, now I understand. I totally get it because I couldn't I couldn't marry the two. Why, mm-hmm. you know, like. He was telling you that you must be love, you know, you must mm-hmm. like like my favorite star person always said to me, and I, I, to, I think I told you this now, pre-meeting, that the most profound words he said to me that I've tried to live with, and that was, Miriam, when you do anything, you must do it from your heart. When you mm-hmm. speak, speak from your heart. When you act, act from your heart. Mm-hmm. And just there was such a correspondence with what Enza says mm-hmm. to you and what my star people told me that Mm -hmm. I was really having difficulty marrying the two, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I'm always honest. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But now I completely understand after talking to you like this, I completely see why. Like our paths are different. We've taken Mm -hmm. different journeys. I've Mm -hmm. never seen, I've never seen insectoid or Mm -hmm. aliens star people, not consciously anyway. I've certainly seen reptilians. Mm-hmm. I have seen greys, but I've never been abducted. Mm-hmm. I've been an experiencer, and my first experience was my first conscious memory of seeing beings was when I was three. Mm-hmm. So I've had, but unlike you, I've been on ships. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've been on ships, but I saw myself in like, for one of the terms, a classroom situation where they were teaching me mm-hmm. from my childhood up. They've been teaching me things and preparing me to do the work that we're doing pretty much, which is educating people and mm-hmm. getting people to question. We're both doing the same work, but we're coming from a different angle, which is really cool. Really, really yeah, cool. I, I, well, no, I think so. I, I think that's exactly what you're doing. And that's the mission that I'm on. And, and um, you know, Anzar, he tells me that this is uh you know, that part of it is this leap of consciousness, you know, not a leap of faith, but a leap of consciousness. And he calls it into an era of reconversion, which I, I needed to ask him more questions. I, I said, now, I'm try- I kind of understand what you mean, reconversion, but can you explain it? And the way it's explained to me is that ancient people had the connection to the stars, to the earth, to the entities, to the spirits in a very comfortable, natural way. We have come you know into this modern technological society and except for some people that have experiences like yourself like me like some others uh everybody else seems to have hidden that part of themselves it's pushed Mm -hmm. down from a very early age if i didn't have a psychic mom uh i would have had the those experiences beaten out of me you know because i was told don't talk about these things in school because i talk about my uh, my invisible friends that were with me and that, all this stuff. Oh, that's you. You can't. You're in school now. You can't talk about it. that's childish yeah, stuff. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I was. Uh, my mom can. You know, she taught me pretty early on that um, you only talk to certain people about it. You can't talk to everybody you know, about mm-hmm. these things. And we would read each other's minds with cards and do telepathy and stuff. So she she was very very good about that. So she helped me. Uh, a lot. She wasn't a practicing psychic. She was just a natural psychic. Mm-hmm. And her, her mom was a healer, an herbalist and a healer in, in that remote village and that remote island in northern Norway. So because they didn't have hospitals or doctors on that island. So they relied on folk medicine and stuff. 
Sounds so, very much like so that, the Appalachian people. And and yeah, they're very much they're very they're farm and farmers and fishermen. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for World War II, I would be a farmer or a fisherman in northern Norway, more than likely. World War II, the consequences of that got my parents to to immigrate to the United States. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, yeah, so that's. Um, I don't know where I started with that, but that's where I ended up. So that's okay. <laughs> no, that's really, that's really yeah. cool. That's, uh, and um, I was going to say about your mum and your gran, mm-hmm. very often star people follow families through generations mm-hmm. for people like us to mm-hmm. come in. So when we come in, then they can, like, they, they follow the family genetics for mm-hmm. a reason. It's very, very common thing. So it's not surprising that you had encounters earlier in your life. And it's not surprising that, you know, it's ongoing now. And quite often, but not always, it comes through the female line. Mm -hmm. In my family, it actually came through both. My -hmm. father had experiences and my mother did as well. Mm -hmm. So, and that's not uncommon either. You got the the double whammy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my dad was very, he was very practical, you know, fisherman, carpenter. Yeah. He, he didn't like uh, my mom and I reading, you know, cards and, yeah. and telepathy. He did, he, he'd let us do it for a while for like entertainment purposes. And then yeah. as soon as we got too many hits in a row, he'd get freaked out and he'd say, that's Excuse it. And yeah. I'd put yeah. the cards away. My mom would wink at me though. So I knew that we're, we're respecting dad's boundaries, but you know, we know yeah. what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And that makes a big difference, having a support like that when you're growing Mm -hmm. up. It makes a huge difference. My personal knowing from what my star people have taught me aligns a lot with what Anzara has been telling Mm -hmm. you about the coming earth changes Mm -hmm. and tumultuous times that are happening on this planet. However, I come with a bit of a different understanding to you about mm-hmm. the behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. I did, when when COVID was first released, I put out a podcast episode, just a bonus episode, 20 minutes, and it's called The End Game, and it's my mm-hmm. knowing about what's going on, mm-hmm. which comes from a totally different angle to yours. Mm-hmm. I told people, I talked about the social manipulation that the current governments, all the governments are mm-hmm. doing, and I hate social manipulation, social engineering, sorry, social engineering, mm-hmm. because this reality is so controlled. Oh, I know what I was going to say um, before we <laughs> finish, Bruce. Years ago, years ago, when you're talking about Anzar saying, you know, people were going to come to a different, years ago, 1985, in fact, last time, I, I spoke with my star people. They said to me, Marianne, currently, I said, what's happening with the earth changes? And they said to me, back in the 80s, currently the earth's been held in position so she doesn't move before, so she doesn't move. They did this, like they were being, mm-hmm. she's been held by a ba- like a baby, cradled mm-hmm. uh, in position. He said, uh, there have to be a certain number of souls who are at a level of spiritual understanding mm-hmm. before the earth changes can begin in earnest mm-hmm. because people have to have the opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. to anyway that point was reached about three years ago i felt the energetic shift when it happened i felt mm-hmm. it physically felt it and since then and i in fact 
as soon as it happened, as soon as I felt it, I wrote a post in my group saying, this has just happened. Mm -hmm. This energy shift has just happened. Now watch from now on, this will happen and this will happen. And you'll see a polarization of people. You'll see more people Mm -hmm. standing up and speaking out about injustices. And then the Me Me Too movement came and then all this came and Mm -hmm. And and then the COVID thing came and I put out this podcast saying, don't buy into the fear because they use fear as a means of controlling you. So you won't question what's going on. It's that David Icke, you, have you heard of David mm-hmm. Icke? Mm-hmm. It's his saying, problem, reaction, solution, create a problem. And I have no doubt COVID is genuine. How it got into the public situation, however, is it, so they create the problem and people jump up and say, oh, my God, save us. What are we going to do? Reaction. Oh, here's the solution. Let's take away your rights. Mm-hmm. Let's take away your freedoms. Let's inject you. Yeah. Let's do this, you know. Without, and, and then people, going back to what you said at the beginning, and then people are doing things without questioning it, mm. Yeah. Mm. without thinking about it, without thinking it through. They're just they're just reacting, you know, gut reaction from fear. Gut reaction and, uh, from fear. Yeah. And it's deliberate. It's deliberate. And so I always say to people, don't fear. That's what they want you to do. People who are scared are easy to control. Mm-hmm. People who are scared, uh, it, uh, it's very easy for them to give up their rights because they think that they'll be protected, but they'll never get those rights back. Like no. here in New Zealand, when COVID first came out, and we had one case in New Zealand in the community, we mm-hmm. shut down for two weeks. Mm-hmm. During that period of time, the government rushed through a law saying that the police could enter our homes without warrants. Mm, yeah. Dr- draconian measures being introduced to control the population. But that's that's kind of like a whole nother story. No, that's uh, I, I, uh, you know, Anzar told me that uh, in January of 2020, he said he told me that COVID originated in a lab in in Wuhan and a weapons lab and that it was likely he said likely likely it was accidental, but it was from a weapons lab. So it wasn't, a, a, you know, whatever the wet market story. And I happened when that was all going on, I had a, a Chinese exchange student from mainland China, but she had, was moving to the United States. I think she got married or something and she was right. from that area. And she said, you know, that story is ridiculous. And that's, you know, Anzar told me this. And then I had a student tell me in my class, she just came up to me and said, you know, the story is not true. We, we don't eat bats. And and that that it didn't come from a wet market. There's a weapons mm-hmm. lab right there, and mm-hmm. and I didn't tell her that. Oh well, you know, Anzar told me that too. But that was yeah. a lady that lived in that area yeah. from China, and she she told me that. So it uh, and then you know the the more dubious connections are even that we might have known about the weaponization and we might have even financed it. So that you know there's there's some nasty connections that are not just you know, in, from one source, you know, one, there's not, there's not just Indeed. one boogeyman. There's many boogeyman. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And in fact, in fact, my instinctual gnome was that China was being the fall guy, but actually they weren't entirely to blame. I, th- well, you know, uh, Ansar told me that it was likely an accident, but they did weaponize it. They did uh, what I forgot what the terminology is. Yeah. Something, uh, 
something production for use or something. I forgot what they call that, that terminology, but they had made it, you know, it was a hybrid from the original, you know, mm -hmm. virus mm -hmm. and they had made it worse. Uh, I, I just call it weaponization, but there's some technical medical term. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, it, it's, um, uh, it's a, you know, I, I think the truth will eventually come out, but uh, who knows what's going to happen between now and then. And, and meanwhile, you know, once you give up uh, certain individual rights, it's very, very difficult to get them back. And uh, it's been, you know, throughout history, you know, it usually happens during wartime. Mm. And that's why they like to use war terminology. You know, we're at war with against the virus, mm. you know, because mm. then they can institute, like you said, draconian measures mm. and people don't question it because they are so afraid. Oh, yes, it's mm. a war. And, uh, you know, the, the, there's a two step process to losing your freedom. The first step is loss of privacy. The mm -hmm. second step is your actual physical freedom you lose. Mm. But you first you lose your privacy. And we have a right to privacy and we have mm. a right to individual freedom. And that it's a. It, it seems to follow that, that pattern. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very scary. It is. And it's, and it's like Anzar always tells me, you know, cool, try to remain cool and calm and logical and help people to understand. Mm. And, uh, and as we go through, you know, this, as he called it, the series of calamities, mm. that mm. trials and tribulations that we're going to have. Yes. And as I said in, in my in-game podcast, uh, for the bonus episode, I said, you know, it's going to be a wild ride. We're in for a ride, mm -hmm. but we're all in it together. So, yeah. you know, that's the thing. There's no one that's not going to be affected in one way or another. Yeah. And, and we, uh, you know, one of my favorite, uh, when I was growing up, my dad used to tell me the story of the Kontiki. The, uh, right. the the Norwegian explorer Tor Heyerdahl, who got yes. on a on a raft, a, a balsa wood raft, with along with some other guys of different nationalities, and they floated to Polynesia, mm. and I think it was eleven hundred miles and so many days, I forgot. But they, you know, his concept was that uh, we're we're all really living on a raft, mm. and we need each other to survive. We can't afford to be fighting and arguing mm. and blaming mm. each other. He said, when we were on that raft, we put aside all of our differences and we mm. focused on one thing and that was survival. And mm. we got that raft and us to that remote island in, in uh, Polynesia. And uh, I, I really believe that. And, and having studied American wars and talked to thousands of veterans, you know, combat veterans, that's one thing they all say is that when you're under fire, nothing else matters other than the person next to you and you don't care what color his skin is yeah. or what their religion is. They, they have your back. You are brothers or yeah. sisters as the case may be, you know, women in combat too. And, uh, and you put aside all your differences mm. and all of that goes away and you have that mm. focus on survival. Mm. And uh, it could be that these trials and tribulations and calamities bring us to a, a point where, we can't afford to be arguing and fighting. We need to all pull together at the same mm. time to make it across the ocean or in the raft, that shaky old raft. Yeah, very yeah. possibly. Yeah. But, but, you know, when Enzar talked about a coming civil war, Mm -hmm. And I can see why the people who stand, like you mentioned earlier, and this is going to be controversial for my listeners, but you mentioned earlier about people, uh, vaccinations being compulsory for people to be able to go to university. Mm -hmm. 
that's taken away people's rights. You know, people have a right to choose. We were just talking about that today in my uh, faculty meeting, and uh, I came up with a very uh, easy solution. I said, those that, that want to be, you know, to go along with that and teach on campus, go ahead. Those that don't for religious reasons, personal reasons, whatever, they don't want to, they can teach online. We've already proven we can teach online successfully. Yeah. So just yeah. remain home and teach online and the students too, if they do, yeah. may, they probably make it mandatory for students too. So if you don't want to go get the mandatory or the vaccination, then stay home, take your online classes. And yeah. we've already, it's a proven modality. So there's an easy, elegant solution. I mean, not elegant, Absolutely. but it's a easy solution mm-hmm. to, uh, to uh, avoid that, but it probably is not going to go down that, that easy. <laughs> no, no. And making it mandatory takes away a person's freedom of choice, which is a control. And nobody has the right to tell another person what they can do or not do with their own body, whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. It's the same principle. And yeah. it comes back to the right of privacy, too. You yeah, know? exactly. So do you, you know, can somebody, can your employer say, uh, I need to know if you've been vaccinated or not? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a medical record. There are laws about protecting your medical information, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. apparently there's some loophole that is developed in the, what we call the HIPAA law here, uh, where they can legally ask you, but you legally don't have to tell them, but they can legally ask you. And then of course, they can make up all kinds of uh, repercussions should you mm. not give them the confirmation. Mm. You know, mm. so th- th- it's going to be a sticky wicket, <laughs> a sticky situation. It's a very, very slippery slope. I actually yeah. was watching a video this morning of a guy in England who who was unvaccinated and he tried to get into this pub and they wouldn't let him into the pub to have a drink unless mm-hmm. he could prove that he'd been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And that's happening already in England. Yeah. So it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. And But the side is that more and more people are waking up to what's happening and they're starting to protest about it. Yeah, yeah. And then, but, but, but they're using this divisive tactic. So those who've had the vaccine are very, for the most part, rabidly vaccine. You have to have the vaccine. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you're stupid, you're... you're a danger to other people, you know, it's a divide and conquer tactic. Yeah. And it's been, it's been deliberately, um, deliberately, what's the word, encouraged. Yeah, I think, I think that there's so many ways that we, I, I can speak for America, you know, for, you know, being an American historian, but our country is being divided along so many different lines, yeah. whether it's pro-vax, anti-vax, yeah. uh, pro-life, you know, pro-choice, uh, uh, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter versus, you know, people who, you know, the whatever people think, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. divided along lines of race and gender and yeah. sexuality and everything else. I mean, it, it's like, well, wait a second. Can't we all just, you know, accept each other and realize there are differences and then there are similarities and we can mm-hmm. all get along and mm-hmm. and we don't have to get into these warring camps, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, batten down the hatches and get ready for, for combat yeah. here, you know, this is, uh, you know, we're, we, we're pretty clever at compromise when we get down to it, you know, but we got to, we got to, as, as an old saying in, in Westerns is you got to sober up and put your pistol away, you know? Right. <laughs> you, you know what it boils down to, what it is from its fear. Mm-hmm. 
It's just fear. And humans have been genetically created with a fear button that's easily triggered. Yeah. Because you can control through fear. So where do you think you're going from here? What do you see in your in your near future? I'm going to continue to write. I'm really I'm working on two comic books right now. I really love comic books, and I didn't really talk that much about them. But the my main character Snark is an alien human hybrid. So a lot of my personal experiences I've fictionalized and put into my comic book characters. And uh, there was a spinoff comic uh, called Doctor Jekyll Alien Hunter, also an alien theme. And uh, the main character is a, a middle-aged woman, a female professor. And because uh, I thought all these in comic books, they always uh, hypersexualize women, you know. Yeah, and I thought do. I just want a, a regular woman who's a professional lady who's studying, you know, she studies ancient aliens and she has these all these adventures. And so I wanted to have that something that young women could pick up and or any age person, yeah. you know, male or female and and say, oh, there's a different face. There's a different look. There's a different scenario there. And uh, so that that was and I have a daughter that's 25 and, and she's she helps me understand yeah. changes in society. She's very I'm good sure about she that. Does. She's very good about helping me understand all that. <laughs> and uh, and my wife, too. But uh, so uh, anyway, so I got those comic books. So that's what immediately in the next couple of years. I know I don't know if I'll do any more paranormal books, but paranormal stuff keep ha- keeps happening. So I'm sure that'll probably in what form it comes, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to be on a couple of TV shows, which is kind of interesting. I, it just kind of, you're out there, you know, and people yeah. all of a sudden say, hey, we would like to talk to you. And so, like, I'm going to go film next week for some show. And then I've already been filmed for uh, a show that comes out in the fall. Uh, and so all these People with a lot of money now are all of a sudden interested. They don't think people who have had alien or paranormal experiences are nuts anymore. They think they're right, right. a way to make money, right? That's what they're, they're not approaching it from like you and I, from a spiritual sense, but from, yeah, yeah. oh, we can make some money off this. So. Yeah. But, you know, one way or the other, you get your message out there. So, exactly. And yeah. even, even if it just causes somebody to question, you mm-hmm. know, that's a good thing because that's a seed planted and who knows Mm-hmm. what will come of that yeah so that's really cool now how can people contact you bruce well if if they go to my website bruce olav uh all my contact information is there my email and everything and uh, all my books are on there all the things that all the projects i'm working on are all contained on that one website and uh oh. Yeah. So that's how you can stay up to date with what I'm doing. And I, I enjoy when people write me, oftentimes I'm on podcasts and people will write me and tell me, Hey, this happened. And what do you think? And so I, I, you know, I, I try to answer the best I can. And uh, so I, I always enjoy when people uh, contact me and uh, I, I really enjoyed being on, on your podcast and talking to you. And I enjoyed our pre, you know, when we talked earlier yeah. too, so I, I knew that we would uh, hit it off well, and, and uh, you had some really good questions about the book, and I, I appreciate that. Some, you know, you really got into it. So, it's it's a good book. It is a good read. It's a long read, four hundred pages, but yeah. it's very interesting. And you know, uh, it's really brave of you to put that out there, especially since there's been a lot of. 
questionable material. Yes. In the UFO community, especially. Yeah. There, there are so many charlatans. Well, there are in the yeah. paranormal community in general, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if you follow your heart, like you said, and you keep, you know, love in your heart and operate from a position of love, you can kind of see through that when you go, mm. somebody's genuinely, you know, mm. I, I remember once somebody said something about one of my books and they said, oh, this guy's just making a fortune off these books. And I'm thinking, buddy, you don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Publishing. I, I've spent more on editing and than I've ever made on, but it's, so that's not the purpose. If that was the purpose, I would be a, a, an extreme failure at what I'm doing. So that's not, and, and whenever I'm on one of these shows, it's like, it, you know, the only people that get paid in entertainment are the, the stars, right? Everybody else is yeah, like, yeah. you get like a hundred bucks or something. <laughs> that's that's or, it. Or we do it for love. <laughs> or you do it for nothing. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, maybe they'll give you a sandwich, you know, that's about it. <laughs> And that's cool with me. I, I'm not expecting anything more than that. So that's fine. I, 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 I'm going to do what I do no matter what. So Exactly. Exactly. Are you on social media, Bruce? Are you on Instagram or TikTok or? No, just, just Facebook. Just so Facebook. you can, yeah, you can find me just my name on, on Facebook. I'm there. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Just my website and Facebook and all, all my books are on uh, uh, Amazon as well. And I think other booksellers, online booksellers too. Right. But the best way is just go to my website and then you can see all the different things that I'm up to. Comic books, books, music, every all the interests, all my plays, you know, <laughs> all oh, the things. Brilliant. Well, they will be uh, on the Walk in the Shadowlands website, which is www.walkintheshadowlands.com. Every episode, I have a, a page for each episode, and mm -hmm. on that episode, there's a full written transcript, like the one that oh, you all mm -hmm. and with links. So nice. people can either go to your website, or they can go to this episode's page on, on the Walk in the Shadowlands website. That mm -hmm. will take them to your website if they can't mm -hmm. remember the name. So either way, they can contact you that way. So that's really cool. Bruce, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Marianne. I, I appreciate it. That was fun. I want to thank Bruce for talking with us all today and sharing his experiences and viewpoint. I really enjoy my guests and I know I mention this so often. Apart from the fact that our podcast wouldn't be the same without them, I find that with each guest I've learned so much. I never tire of learning, searching and most importantly questioning. Whether or not I agree entirely with each guest or their viewpoint, isn't that a wonderful thing about learning? It just never stops. That is, if you're open to new growth potential, even if it's just in recognizing how you react to a certain trigger and why. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation as well. Perhaps it may even have planted a seed for you, a desire to search out a new understanding or learning, or that you were simply entertained. It's all good either way. Thank you for joining Bruce and I today and listening to this episode. I certainly appreciate it and you. If you enjoyed this podcast and have considered becoming a sponsor, now's a great time to join. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. 
As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members-only page on the podcast website that has bits that end up on the digital cutting board and little extras like full, raw, unedited video, warts and all conversations with guests, EVPs caught during the conversations and so much more. Also, you can download full written transcripts of each episode and you get my absolute appreciation and gratitude. Patreon.com forward slash MCC15 for just the cost of a cup of coffee a month. You can help support me with the running costs of producing and editing and hosting this podcast. Today's bumper music was called Space Force Theme by Orchestralis. So you don't miss out on an episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, Over Walking the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands 10, TikTok under walking underscored the underscored Shadowlands. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes. Also check out our website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all tell your friends tell your family tell your workmates about our show encourage them to listen and to subscribe also the more the merrier thanks for listening to this episode kakite ano oya koi I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. 